This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Hello, everybody, and welcome to By the Book. I am Lee Trelin, and with me is my fellow huge fan of the author Salman Rushdie, Sharmila Ganesan. Hello. So uh, we've made no bones about how much we enjoy Salman Rushdie's writing and works. We have uh, dedicated a book club to him. I think we've done Midnight's Children. We've done a bibliography. <laughs> so uh, it's no surprise that when his 15th novel came out, Victory City, we were, of course, going to do it again. And it's kind of timely because, well, for all sorts of reasons that we'll get into, but it's also the first book that was published after the recent attack and attempt on his life. Yes, and and oddly, right? There are there are. Of course, now we can read parallels between the themes that exist in the book and and the incident itself. But I think it's probably more fair to say that these are parallels uh, with themes and issues and conversations that Rushdie has been interested in his practically his whole career. Um, I will say straight up that. Actually, this is the first Salman Rushdie book I've read in a while, even though I actually deeply enjoy his works. Um, and I'm so glad that I sort of returned to the fold with this one. Um, I really loved this book. It is simultaneously very familiar in many ways as a Rushdie work, but also surprising as a Rushdie work in many ways. And 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 I think we can talk more about that. So... So what you're gonna you're gonna force me is it to summarize the book a um, little bit because it's more fun that way. So Victory City is is actually quite quite an atypical Rushdie book in some ways. Uh, we'll get into that, but primarily the language of the book is very very different. The language and style of the book is extremely different to what you might be accustomed to with Salman Rushdie. That includes the the characterizations. The characterizations in this book are in deep, and the reason for that is because Victory City is, is ostensibly a translation of an epic poem originally written in Sanskrit of a 14th century fictional empire, Bisnaga, that is actually based on the empire of uh, Vijayanagara. Um, and so in the process of being the translator of this epic poem that is written by the protagonist of the book, um, Pampa Kampana, Rushdie ends up kind of almost abnegating himself because there is a narrator. Um, there are footnotes, there, there are all sorts of things within the book that indicate, that point to the fact that there is someone telling the story. But who that someone is, is quite vague because it's a translator. I think you did a really good job. I, I, I mean, I, I would have done much worse. I mean, I think the, the, the simplest way, <laughs> I actually tried to describe this book to someone a couple of days ago. Uh, the simplest way to describe it is that it is a, a, a fictional translation of a quote unquote found historical epic, right? Except oh, in a clay everything pot. is, sorry? In a clay pot. In a clay pot, yes. So someone discovered, they excavated this epic, but none of it is actually real, although lots of it is based on real um, real historical events from South India primarily, but also Indian history, Indian mythology, um, lots of stuff. Um, I will say, and, and I'm curious to hear about this from you, it can be intimidating, I think, to, to st start and then wonder... Oh, how much is real? Am I supposed to know things before I go into this book? I do think that actually not knowing anything and taking it entirely as fantasy is fun. Um, knowing, though, then feels a little richer. And I think that might be inevitable. 
Okay, I agree that it's fun. Um, I would add another adjective, which is that it's discombobulating. And I feel that mm. quite keenly because um, you go in and... Firstly, like we've mentioned, and I hope we've made clear, the framing device in and of itself is kind of a mind bender. So, so you start with that. And then after that, um, and I kept asking you, I think, or rather I kept asking you, when you read it, can you let me know how much of it is, is historical, how much of it, it draws its um, draws from mythology? Because it also makes reference to like the Mahabharata. So you know that it it it's literally directly referencing it. But then at the same time, I'm like, but how many of the events also come from it? I don't know. So there's a lot of that kind of thing. And I don't consider myself particularly well-versed in Indian history or mythology. I know the main figures. Uh, I understand. I know some stories, but the whole thing as an epic, uh, whether it's the... The point is, I don't have that kind of backing. And so I really enjoyed the book, but I also found myself often wondering... What don't I know? And would knowing something help? Yeah, um, would knowing something help? Actually, it's a disservice to his work to say it doesn't help, right? Because he's put in, some of this is really just someone really flexing. Like, look at the stuff I know and look at the research I've done. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It actually really adds layers to the book. But I think... In the end, uh, the central story is so compelling. And I will say this for the readers who haven't read the book. The central story is almost entirely fictionalized. So when he refers to like Mahabharata or Ramayana or other forms of um, Indian mythology, those things, the references are real, but their connection to the story are not real. So that's one way to delineate. Well, can I ask you, you said so clearly and confidently, um, and it's a confidence I don't share. You said very clearly the central story. And so I would like to ask you, is this the central story of Bisnaga the Empire, which it, it starts out as being about, or is it the central story of Pampa Kampana, who was a young girl who, after witnessing the uh, self-immolation, I suppose, uh, of her mother on a mass cremation, then gets possessed, blessed, cursed, depending on how you want to look at it, by a goddess and granted many gifts, um, including an externally youthful appearance and an unnaturally extended life. So you could argue, in some ways, Pampa Kampana is the only character that anybody remembers or is the only character worth remembering because everybody else just comes in and out. And maybe that's um, part and parcel of living a very long life. Everybody blurs into one person in the end. But just to go back, is this the story of Bisnaga or is it the story of Pampa? Of Pampa. Um, for me, that's the driving force through the through the book. Um, the others, you know, there's a there's a sort of cyclical, not even cyclical, almost like a copy of a copy of a copy sense of in the story, right? Because You're referring over, to a Portuguese man. <laughs> I know there, there's a constant Portuguese man with red hair who shows up. Kings and and even uh, heads of guard have the same name that refer to somebody who lived a couple of decades before them. Um, so really, you're right that Pampa Kampana is the, is the only real character in this book in some sense for us. But even she's not real. And that's what makes this so interesting because even she is only revealed to us through this work she wrote, but then is now being translated by an unnamed translator. So there's so much there. And, and I think I'm a little bit of a 
like a story nerd, right? So anything that that this sort of storytelling does, I'm immediately going to be interested by. Um, but I do think that that central story of a, a girl who comes from very difficult poor means, um, who then becomes this outsized influence on this huge empire, that in itself is so interesting. I mean, um, I can't remember whether you said this earlier, but essentially she founds Bisnaga through her magic powers. And then um, we kind of see how she evolves alongside the empire. Well, one big theme um, about this notion of her being the founder um, is that she gets no credit for it or she doesn't get credit yes. for it for a very long time. And that's something she struggles with. I thought that was an interesting theme. Another thing is, so she literally, she births the, the place in terms of all its walls and bricks and buildings and animals. But then she also births its people, the Bisnagans, uh, by way of her magic seeds. And and then at first they're nothing. They're just sort of born of clay and, and wandering around and crying because they don't have a mother. And it requires their mother, Pampa, to go around whispering to them who they are and what they believe. And again, actually this... There's a lot to do in this book about the power of creation, uh, the importance of, of writing, the joy and responsibility in many ways of, of doing both those things. But if you think about it from the perspective of a writer writing about a character who then informs all her own characters about their beliefs, that's interesting. Um, if you consider also the life of Salman Rushdie as shaped by people being unable to accept differing opinions and how that in turn makes its way into this book, that's also another interesting kind of lens through which to look at it. The power of words, right, in the end, whether written or spoken. Um, and, and, you know, he very much arrives at that uh, towards the end of the book as well. Um, and, and I think that's a that's a really strong theme here. But the power of words versus truth and who's truth. And there's a lot of that as well. Um, I, I mean, I, I enjoyed that the book is not just a preachy, so with things like this, you can get very conceptual to the point where the, the concept is interesting, but the story isn't really. Um, it's difficult to make a book where uh, to make a book where you're not really connected emotionally to any of the characters, but you still remain constantly interested in them. Um, at least I did anyway. Me too. But that's something I want to come back to because it was one of my um, biggest struggles with the whole mm. book. So we're talking today about Victory City, uh, Salman Rushdie's 15th novel. I'm not going to summarize it again. If you missed it... Um, you can catch it on podcast. <laughs> Just the Cliff's Notes for this book, complex. Anyways, uh, let us know. Do you enjoy reading Salman Rushdie? Have you read Victory City? Did you like it? You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Books, figurines, movies. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Buy the Book. You're with Lynn and Sharmila, and we are dissecting and enjoying, or rather talking about our enjoyment of Salman Rushdie's Victory City. So right before we left off, Sharmila, you mentioned that it's an interesting and kind of very skillful way, skillful thing to be able to achieve that there's no, I, I highly doubt anybody gets emotionally attached to any of these characters. No, no, the, not even Pampa Kampana, actually. They're not meant to be, they're archetypal. Mm. So, you know, it's the strong one, it's the hard-headed one, it's the big one. You know, they, they aren't, even their names kind of just reflect that. They, they, they're not meant for you to care about. 
so I struggled with that. Um, and I've realized recently that I am a very emotive reader. Um, I often remember how books made me feel. Uh, I don't always remember the actual story. Uh, I'm not somebody who goes around quoting lines from books, um, but I will tell you that that was a beautiful book or, or that was an immersive book. And because of that, um, I left Victory City definitely not cold. I enjoyed it, but I left it feeling like I didn't know how to feel because I hadn't felt anything. Um, it was kind of a very intellectual exercise. And that's not something I'm used to with someone like Salman Rushdie, who generally speaking, writes very smart, but also very emotive books. Um, I, You know, I don't disagree. I think it's absolutely fair to say that I also didn't come out from the book. There was There were perhaps a couple of moments where something happens and I was literally the, oh, I can't believe that happened. Or, oh no, like, you know, there were a few, but it was never to the point where you actually feel... So it's like reading a, a really well-written historical book or, a, or a, um, you know, when you, you, you decide a really well-written encyclopedia, but with like colorful um, anecdotes and, and, you know, a story that you don't know. Um, I'm not sure that I had a problem with that, but I can also see how um, for people it, it may not be the easiest because you do want to connect to the characters. I think for me, it's the double alienation. You know, it's one or the other because you are one less alienated than yes, me. So for me, the excitement of recognizing the little hints that he drops, like, oh, this kingdom uh, was about diamonds or, you know, that goddess that pops up, the reference there is from the Ramayana. Like, you know, there are pleasures to be had from things like that. So the pleasures for me really rested in um, watching somebody enjoy a story and that somebody was the author. I, I know that sometimes uh, that sounds like I'm damning with faint praise, almost like, oh, he was the only person who enjoyed the sound of his own voice. That's not what I'm saying. I, I, what, I, what I'm getting at is I don't think that this is a book that... This is a book that requires some experience to write. It requires experience, research, skill, expertise. And there is... a a pleasure in letting yourself be carried away by that. Another thing is, um, and Sharmila, you brought this up earlier as well, the story moves really fast. So it moves really quickly and there's no shortage of beheadings, of empires falling, of wars, of evil monkeys, of, you know, there's all sorts of things going on. And the, the book, despite its, uh, despite its length, actually moves so quickly that you, you get carried along and it's not a slog at all. Um, I think the pacing is brilliant. Um, the, the way in which story the story moves along. And in a funny way, um, how the first chapter, which is longer and is also about the sort of most significant part, right? The founding of Bisnaga. I remember so much more about that than all the people that came after. And in some sense, it feels again like the way history books might write, that you remember the most fraught periods and then not really the 40 years in between where actually everything was fine and people were happy. There were no wars fought. Um, the, the whole book has that sense, but it's it's very, very... Um, well-paced. Um, it makes you feel like you're along for a journey. It's also not a very long book. Um, so it's. I found it very easy to read, which is something that with Rushdie isn't always the case. So um, when I said that there were things about this that were very familiar in, a, in that Salman Rushdie way, the 
finicky attention to detail, the wanting to layer like things with themes, all of that is there. Um, the the stumping for free speech, you know, and and obviously I love that. But I was also actually a little bit surprised that it felt light in a way that I'm maybe not used to from a Rushdie book. So that was, again, another thing I struggled with because it's an it's an epic poem. So mm. I didn't know whether it was supposed to feel light or whether it was just feeling light because I was reading it at such a steady clip, um, which yeah. is another thing because the book encourages you to read it quite quickly because, again, you're, you're kind of moving from... Um, Honestly, the movie will take the movie. See what I mean? It's very cinematic, <laughs> but it I, is cinematic though. I can imagine it looking great. So, um, and I said movie actually, ironically, because there's a scene that I'm thinking of, that I was thinking of that to me felt very cinematic, and it happens in a forest. And um, I, I think that entire series of chapters, uh, that part, that section of the book that takes place in the forest, a very cinematic. But the other thing is that's the part that takes you from somebody's daughter to that daughter's seventh descendant. Mm-hmm. And and that happens in the space of like three pages. And, and that's in it. In the space of like a person being put to sleep for a period of time. And then you just have to adjust. Yeah. And, and then you just yeah. have to go from there. So I I agree. I said length just now, but I think that was me referring to epic. <laughs> <laughs> I think it doesn't help that our copy of the book, and we have the same copies, is those um those larger paperbacks. And so they look deceptively thick and big, but actually the text is quite large in the book. So that said, um, I, I think... I think we do have to talk about the real life parallels because it's one that several people, these parallels are easy to draw um, in terms of what happens to the protagonist of the book and what was soon to happen to Salman Rushdie after he wrote the book. Because it's it's easy to look back and I think that in years to come, when people start getting muddled up about the timeline, it's going to be almost as if he wrote Victory City after the stabbing. But the truth was he wrote it you know, well before. And so people have been calling him his own Cassandra, which I think is is a you very know. unfortunate thing to say, but in this case, so true. And so much in the, because we haven't even talked about the politics and the socio-political things that happen in Bisnaga, right? And, and again, he writes about them, not too much in depth, but they all feel familiar, the sort of tension between uh, politics and progress and, and religion, um, how there are different factions with different ideologies that rise and fall as centuries go by. And I don't know, the... I suppose on the one hand, you could read this book and feel like none of this matters because in the end, you look back at a swath of history and everything is just flattened. And there is a little bit of a sense with Victory City of it all being flattened. But then on the other hand, the the, the central point about the importance of storytelling and the importance of um, carrying forward our stories, that feels incredibly important. I have two more things to bring up. Um, one of which is the women, the woman factor and the women yes. factor. Because uh, we, you mentioned the the sort of socio-political stuff that happens in Bisnaga. And one of the big, big things that occurs, and it also determines in some ways Pampa Kampana's own rise and fall and her degree of power in whatever given century she's operating in. A lot of it has to do with the fact that she envisions a city in which women are equal, in which we're talking about matriarchs, um, matrilineal lines, just women being seen as 
as political operatives and political powers in their own right. And that's something that gets challenged over and over again in the book. Um, And interestingly, I feel that it's something you kind of have to draw on for yourself because much like the rest of the book, even though that's actually kind of, you could you could argue that that is a long argument, that that's a big discussion. In the book, it's alluded to in a matter of sentences over every chapter. See, maybe because this is Salman Rushdie, um, I kind of thought this was one of his best books in terms of how it wrote and handled women. Um, which is not to say the bar is super high because he is of, as we often say, a different generation. His fiction hasn't done very badly at all. Um, just that... The women are rarely the drivers of many of the stories. Um, His nonfiction and personal life, much less, you know, positive. But I thought that with this one, there was there was actually a strong sense that he was trying to do something with these ideas of feminism and equality and progress uh, in a way that I appreciated, especially from a writer um, writing at a later stage in his life. So that's one thing, um, the women. The other thing I wanted to talk about, and this is something that I personally find interesting, is um, do you mind that the ending is at the beginning? You know it, that you know that the empire will fall and that therefore you know that things don't go well for her. I didn't mind at all. And actually, I really liked how sometimes the book would overall do exactly that. It would introduce you to a character and immediately in the next sentence tell you, yeah, but this guy dies 10 years from now. Or, you know, this guy becomes king, but in 30 years, the kingdom is like decimated. Um, So the book is, in a way, it's not interested in building on a story. It's almost sort of doing, again, the thing with history where you know patches of things. Um, So I didn't mind. Again, it's becoming very clear to me that the form of this book um, and the way it sort of nests inside each other, for me, did a lot of the heavy lifting. So I didn't mind either, but I expected that to create more emotional impact and it didn't. And that interested Ah, me. So um, that's why I wanted to bring it up because most of the time, if you know going in that your character is going to come to an untimely and probably very difficult end, that then imbues everything that they do with some sort of sense of tragedy or some sense of emotionality, just something. But in this case, because of that historical dispassionate approach. It doesn't. And it's just an observation. Um, I was curious what you thought. So uh, we're talking today about Salman Rushdie's Victory City, which we both enjoyed, but in quite different ways. Uh, Let us know. Have you read it yet? Do you enjoy Salman Rushdie's writing? You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. And of course, you can also write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. brings us to footnotes where we've got a really short little mini discussion that we didn't get to in the main body of our show and that is essentially the difference between reading a writer when they're very young and just starting out um, versus at what is likely close to the end of their career. Gosh I mean of course I have to confess I never really read Rushdie when he was actually young right like he was already quite venerable and venerated by the time I got to Midnight's Children. Um, But for me, the difference is so significant. Um, I think I I said to you at about a halfway point of reading this book, um, it 
feels like he's so much more chill <laughs> and so much more mellow with this book. There was a and, and and it's not a bad thing, but there was a sort of fieriness and a and a an urgent energy about his earlier writing, where this one really just feels like sometimes thoughts that he's working out for himself. So of course, yeah, neither you nor I are of the generation where we would have been able to read Grimus and think, wow, what an interesting young writer. <laughs> Who's <his> upstart? <laughs> I wonder where he'll go. But um, Grimus was maybe, so it's, Grimus is Salman Rushdie's first book. Uh, it was, I think, maybe my fourth, third or fourth Salman Rushdie novel. And ah. I remember reading it and being so confused. Confused um, because I'd started with Midnight's Children and then I'd read uh, The Ground Beneath Her Feet and then Fury and then I think I went back after that to Grimus. And um, Grimus confused me in the same way as Harun and the Sea of Stories in that you know who this writer is, you recognise them, um, but it's almost like you're time travelling and meeting them at a completely different phase of their life, at a completely different phase of writing. And and I always, I remember being so fascinated by that because it was like you could see the echoes of the writer that he was going to be, but he was a different person. Uh, it's interesting that you brought up Harun in the Sea of Stories because honestly, um, I was going to call the book Pampa Campana, but no, Victory City. Well, I called uh, her Pampana Campana one time <laughs> off air with you, so you know. Um, Victory City actually reminded me the most of Harun. Um, and I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's the it's the sort of heightened fictionality of the world um, or the fact that there's such a sort of... There, there's a lack of distinction between real and magic. Isn't it because there's a storyteller telling a story? Yeah, yeah. So mm. there's that as well, right? So And, and it's weird because they're not doing the same things at all. But again, maybe because he intended it intentionally or not for a for a younger audience, Harun, um, it has that same quality this has of feeling a little bit more loose and light um, versus the... Some of his works can be very intense. Fury, for instance, I found deeply disconcerting. Uh, Fury is tough. Shame is tough. Um, I, I think tough. that... Um, I love that you keep using the word loose to describe um, Victory City, which is formally a very structured novel. Mm. Um, and the same is true for something like Kishot, because, which is, of course, the, the book that was right before this one. And I, the reason I bring that up is because in both those instances, he's referring to venerated texts. He's making, uh, he's building on, he's being very referential, he's uh, changing, but all of it is built in this sort of separate text and in and is slightly dependent on your knowledge of that text. And so in both instances, they're very kind of learned uh, books. They're, they're learned ways of approaching telling a story. But I agree that there is a lightness of touch, which again, did not exist so much when he was a younger writer. It's been his thing for the last few books also, right? Because Kishot does that, which is to go back and kind of um, use history and unearth texts and, and reimagine. He did it with, um, I keep wanting to call it 1001 Nights, but the book, in fact, is actually called Two Years, Eight Months and 28 Nights, which is his reimagining of 1001 Nights. Um, and, and maybe this is just indicative also of his interest in doing this, this looking past and looking looking at the past and looking back to comment on the future. I'm kind of there for it, though. I, I haven't read um, the 1001 Nights book, and now I really want to. 
Something I wanted to say before I forget, because we've been talking about the texts that he refers to. This is not part of footnotes, actually. It's just an additional thing. Um, if you like Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities, yes, that I think has a close kind of yes. reference to how Bisnaga is referred to in Victory City. Yes, um, and, and I loved it when at some point he actually uh, references it directly. Um, it was a nice little Easter egg. We've been talking about the joys of reading an author both at the start and towards the end of their career and being able to take a look at the scope of their work over that time. Uh, and we've been discussing this because today we were book clubbing Salman Rushdie's Victory City. Let us know again, do you enjoy Salman Rushdie? Do you enjoy his earlier works, his later works? Um, you can WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.